Good morning. It's a joy to be with you uh, today. If you would turn to Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 to 7. The words are there in the worship folder, but if you'd like to follow along in the Pew Bible to see the context, it's on page 974. In classical music, there's a concept called development. A single theme, like a piece of melody, is repeated, but it's transformed when it's put in new creative settings. And in moving from the end of Galatians 3 to the beginning of Galatians 4, Paul's doing development, repeating many of the same ideas, but with a new emphasis that unfolds its beauty and its power more fully. Let's pray together that we would be able to behold it. Lord, we thank you that you speak to us again and again. And we pray this morning that you would plant your word deeply in our hearts, that we would be deeply changed because we've been with you. Lord, would you help us to behold your glory and your steadfast love with fresh eyes this morning? Would you glorify yourself? And would you, would you bring us into the fullness of joy that you have given to us as adopted sons and daughters, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. From Galatians 4, Paul writes, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Harry Potter was a famous son but he grew up living like a slave. Almost every Harry Potter novel begins in this horrible house where Harry's aunt and uncle Dursley force him to live in the tiny spider-infested closet under the stairs. When they can't ignore him, they scream at him or make fun of him. He does chores with no reward while his cousin Dudley gets all the rewards with no chores. And at one point, his uncle literally puts bars over his window. In a house where Harry should have been loved, he was treated like a slave by the guardians who hated him. Now, because we can feel Harry's intense sadness and loneliness in our bones, it's thrilling in the story when he's finally set free. After 11 years, the giant Hagrid magically appears to tell him who he really is, not a slave, but the wizard son of loving parents, James and Lily Potter, the heir of their great wealth. And so Hagrid helps Harry step into a whole new life where he has great respect and great status and great friends who love him like family, even the Weasleys who treat him like an adopted son. In all of this, Harry receives a new freedom, a new status, and a new experience of life. And I think that we feel the pain and the joy of this story so much because it's an echo of the true story. Um, of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. 
in Jesus, this story has become reality because as we heard last week from Galatians 3, in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Or as Paul puts it here, God sent forth his son so that we might receive adoption as sons. In Christ, we are adopted children of God. And like Harry, I want us to see in this text that our adoption by God results in a new freedom, a new status, and a new experience of life with God. The first blessing of our adoption is this. Being adopted by God brings a new freedom. Paul describes the story of the church in Galatia as a freedom story. Look at what he says in verses one through three. There he compares the church first to a child who is like a slave in the sense that the child cannot exercise any of the rights of being the family heir. The child is under the control of others, of, of guardians and managers before, who take care of him before the child is old enough to handle adult rights and freedoms. But Paul uses this illustration to make an even more radical claim when he says in verse three, we were also enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Now these, the Greek word that's translated principles here refers to religious systems and practices that control and condemn but cannot give life and salvation truly. Now Jews were used to thinking about the polytheistic religions of Greeks and Romans and other ancient peoples in this way. After all, worshiping false gods can't result in anything but spiritual bondage. But I can hardly imagine the gasps of shock when they realized that Paul was putting Gentiles and Jews together in the same category as spiritual slaves. Paul says that even Jews endured a kind of slavery under the law of Moses, not because the law was bad in any way, but for two other reasons. First, because nothing in the law of Moses itself could actually give life and salvation. The whole system of sacrifices and ceremonies was a temporary means of relating to God until the coming of the eternal Son of God, who would make that whole system unnecessary. But second, the law of Moses led to slavery because most of the people of Israel, in most of their history prior to Jesus, did not trust God with a genuine faith. And they used the law for all kinds of wrong purposes. And so the nation suffered exile and the other curses of the covenant while awaiting the promised Messiah. But when the fullness of time had come, this is one of those great turning points in all of scripture, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son to redeem people in slavery, including his own Jewish people under the law, so that we might be adopted by God as sons. This is an Exodus story. Indeed, it's the greater Exodus. Just as God sent forth Moses to redeem Israel from slavery in Egypt, now God has done it again, but he's done it in a much greater way. God had sent forth the greater Moses, God the Son, to redeem his enslaved people so that we can be set free to live as children of God. Friends, the good news for us today is that God gives us true freedom in Jesus. In Christ, he sets us free in the greatest possible way, free to live with the full dignity that God gave you as a son or daughter of the highest king. And that means being free from everything that would bind you or damage you or control you 
or keep you from walking in the full glory that God has made you to enjoy in knowing and belonging to him. If you give your life to anything other than God, if you are trusting anything other than the true God to be your guide in this world, to be your happiness and comfort, to be your peace, whether it's work or image, money or popularity, sex or food or drugs or any other relationship, then you will only find slavery in the very things that you're hoping in. A slavery that makes you damaged and diminished rather than making you whole in the dignity that God designed you to live and to have as an adopted daughter or son of God. Only God, our creator, the source of our life and our dignity can give you this freedom. And he came, he came himself in the person of the son to give you this freedom as a gift of love. If you know that you're a slave to anything else, the path to true freedom does not begin with a heroic plan of self-discipline or self-effort or working hard to clean yourself up. Now, the path to true freedom begins by simply asking God with humility to set you free and learning to follow him with trust so that you can live in the full dignity of an adopted daughter or son of God. The second blessing of adoption here in this text is a new status, a new status. Look at verse five. In Christ, we have received adoption as sons. And in verse seven, through faith in Christ, you are no longer a slave, but a son. Now, why does it say that all Christians have become sons? I mean, doesn't Paul know that half of his audience is female? Uh, well, yes, of course he does. Paul describes all Christians as sons, not because we're all male, but because we all receive the status of sons. Paul's drawing here on an idea from the Roman practice of adoption. Wealthy and powerful Roman households sometimes adopted sons when they didn't have biological sons to inherit the family's wealth and power. As in many ancient societies, Romans often gave the family inheritance to sons rather than to daughters. It was just the way the world worked at that time. You can see this connection here by following Paul's reasoning to the end of verse seven. You are no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. So being a son means being an heir. And what's amazing here is that God breaks the limits of Roman adoption by applying this status to all of God's people united to him in Christ, male and female. Everyone in Christ, male and female, is a son in the Roman sense because we've all received the status of heirs in Christ's family sons and daughters together inherit the riches of God. And as an aside, the Bible also balances this masculine image with a feminine one. God describes the whole people of God together as his bride. So individually, all Christians are sons, but collectively, we are all God's bride. Interesting, isn't it? In the Bible, our, our gender or sex <clears throat> as male and female is not a merely biological or cultural or emotional reality. God has designed our gender in different ways to be a theological symbol of the story of God with his people. But that's a whole other sermon for another day. If you trust in Christ, you are a son, which means you are an heir of God. 
And, and what is it that we inherit? What makes this such a blessed truth and promise? In Christ, we inherit all that he came to accomplish as the Messiah and Savior in conquering sin and death and in making the whole world new. As New Testament scholar Esau Macaulay has argued, the inheritance of Christ is the fulfillment of all of God's covenant promises to Abraham and to David, namely eternal life in a worldwide family, in a whole creation freed from the covenant curse of death. When God adopts us, he holds nothing back. As adopted sons and heirs, we have a certain place in the riches of the age to come when God's grace will prevail, when this world will become what God intended it to be, when earth and heaven will become one as we sing at the end of every service in Lent, <clears throat> when there'll be no more crying or mourning or pain or death anymore, when God will dwell with a whole world united in perfect love for him and for one another forever, serving and reigning Christ, using all of our gifts to the full to display his glory and to enjoy him forever with the fullness of joy, to live in a story where every chapter gets better than the one before. That's the inheritance. If you are trusting and following Christ, you have become an heir to the Father who owns everything and has your name on the title and deed of all the great glorious good and abundant life that will make all things new. That's what it means to be an heir. And finally, being adopted by God gives us a new experience of God's spirit, a new experience. In ancient Rome, inheritance did not only begin when the father died. Inheritance begins during the father's life. And the same is true for us with God our Father. While there is a lot of our inheritance that we still are waiting for when Christ returns, our share in life with God actually begins now. Adoption is not just a status. It's something much more personal. <laughs> It's the experience of dwelling with God and God dwelling with us in the very depths of our mind and heart and soul. Look at verse six. God says, because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. God has not made us his children just to give us a name and a title. No, he wants us to enjoy the experience of being his children to know and to receive and experience his love and delight in us because he's a perfect, loving father. He wants us to feel deep down the security of belonging to him. He wants his love to produce the happiness of shouting, Father, and knowing that he is always close to hear us, to speak to us, to care for us in the depths of our soul. Because we are children, we have the freedom to be close to God. I recently came across a set of uh, photos of children of US presidents who grew up in the White House when they were little. Uh, one photo shows John F. Kennedy Jr. sitting under his dad's desk, you know, the desk, uh, peeking out at the people meeting in the Oval Office. Another shows Amy Carter sitting in the lap of Jimmy Carter when she was a little girl uh, at the Oval Office desk. Another shows George H.W. Bush reading stories on the sofa in there to his grandchildren. Another shows Sasha Obama hiding behind a couch, uh, waiting to sneak up on her dad and surprise him in a game that they played together. 
I mean, out of all the important and powerful people who, who entered that room together, the only people who can be that close and familiar and playful with the president is his children. And sons and daughters have the privilege to come that close simply to enjoy being with him. And the same is much more true of God. He has come as close to us as he can possibly come in love. Because we are children, we have the closest possible access to him. We have the greatest possible privilege of drawing near to him to live with him. There's a peculiar pain that fathers and mothers feel when children turn away from outstretched arms of love. When children hold themselves back or become distant or run away from parents who so want to enjoy the experience of being close to their children in love and to see their children enjoying that experience too. And if human parents can feel that pain, I can only wonder how much we grieve our Father in heaven when we hold ourselves back, when we follow him at a great distance or turn away. Sin, you see, is not just breaking rules. It's pulling back from our Father, choosing to live like a stranger or a mere servant rather than as a beloved son or daughter. This is still the instinct of my sinful, broken heart to do this every single day. Can you, can you relate with this? The good news of adoption is that we don't have to live like this. We have a Father who pursues us in love who is always, always eager to receive us with great joy when we turn to him. This is why we say every week in our liturgy that God rejoices over us as beloved daughters and sons, to which the only fitting response is? No, no, Uh, Paul says you have to cry out. There's an exclamation point, (laughs) right, right? So the only fitting response is? Yes, now we're, now we're in it. This, do not pull away. Do not withhold yourself from God the Father. He longs, he longs for you and me to run to him, to share your heart at every moment of your life with him. That's the experience we were made for. He's always close by his spirit to tell us that we are his, that we're beloved sons and daughters, and to meet us with a father's perfect understanding, with perfect compassion, with perfect forgiveness, with perfect love, with perfect delight, with perfect wisdom, with perfect encouragement, with perfect strength, because we belong to him. Friends, in a world where so many people are asking, does human life have any value? Does my life have any value and meaning? The word from God the Father today is a resounding yes. He created us to live with royal dignity as his sons and daughters, as children of the highest king in a world where so many are asking, is there hope for me? Is there hope for our world? The word from God the Father is yes, for in Jesus the Son, he has made the fullness of our value and meaning a living human reality in history. In Jesus, there is the greatest of all possible hope, for by trusting the Son, we become sons, that is, heirs of eternal life and his eternal kingdom. I pray that we will discover and enjoy, enjoy more and more the value and meaning and purpose and hope of our life 
in our adoption as beloved sons and daughters, beloved children of God. Let's pray. Father, how we, how we thank you that we can call you Father, that we have all the privileges that you've lavished on us of coming to you, of knowing you, the creator of heaven and earth, to pull us close, to tell us of your love and, uh, to, and to give us, Lord, your strength and your calling and your purpose in this world. Thank you for walking with us. Thank you for never leaving us or forsaking us. Thank you for the love of a father that is our very life. And we pray you'll give us hope, fresh hope again today to walk with you, to not hold ourselves back from you, but to give ourselves, our mind and heart and body and soul to you completely because you are good and because of your love, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.